Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. My name's Connor Sinclair. And I'm Nick, and we are very excited to have Dr. Lee Allen Dugatkin joining us here today. Dr. Dugatkin is a professor of biology at the University of Louisville. His work focuses on the evolution of social behavior in both humans and animals. Over the course of his career, he's spoken at more than 100 universities around the world and has contributed to various publications, including Scientific, American, and Psychology Today. His most recent book is titled How to Train a Fox and Build a Dog. Thank you for joining us today, Professor. My pleasure. Uh, Dr. Degakin, uh, one of the most interesting things we've heard from a lot of our guests on the show is this concept of inflection points. These are pivotal moments in one's life where they kind of realize they, realize they needed to make a change, whether it was in their personal life or in their career. Uh, we were wondering if you could tell us maybe about an inflection point that might have happened in your life. Sure. I could give you uh, two good examples. Uh, I, like so many people, did not know what I wanted to do when I grew up, even after I grew up. And so when I was an undergraduate, I, I was floundering. I was a history major. I was... I have been always interested in American history, and but I was doing it as sort of a placeholder. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I thought about maybe law school, things like that. And uh, one day I was hanging out with a friend of mine uh, over winter break, and he was a student down the road at Cornell, and he had just taken a class in evolution and behavior. And he said, you know, I think you would really be fascinated by this stuff. Let me give you the textbook. I just finished the class. Just take a look at it. I started leafing through it just as a bedtime uh, book. I became fascinated by what I was reading, um, started doing a bit more on my own, picking up some books at bookstores, became more and more interested, and decided uh, with just a year left in my undergraduate work that I would finish up with history, but then I was going to go and try and get into grad school uh, in, in this area. So I took another year um, sort of in between boned up on my biology, got into a master's program, fell in love with it, and stayed studying behavior and evolution ever since. I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't sat down with my friend that night. That's so. awesome. Well, no, as, as someone who has no idea what they want to do at all, that's that's good to hear. It's always yeah. nice to hear. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I'll say something. You know, it, it, I, I absolutely had no idea that, that, that it would pan out like this, but... Um, for the last ten years, in, including this book, on you know that that, that we're talking about here, um, a lot of my work is focused on the history of science, and so the skills that I learned when I was an undergraduate studying history have come back, and and in fact, some of my history of science work really focuses on. Um, the early American Republic, sort of uh, late 1700s, early 1800s, from a scientific perspective, and so I've kind kind of come back to that time period that I was always fascinated by. But now I'm coming at it from the perspective of someone who's interested in the history of science rather than um, American history per se. Yeah, I find that really. I'm a history major myself, um, but I also uh, I never got great grades in science but it's always <laughs> fascinated me um i've yeah. always i always check in on science news and stuff like that so i was just wondering if you can maybe speak a little bit to the importance of scientific literacy even among people who aren't scientists in the traditional sense and in an era in the united states when uh you know a lot of people have become alienated to science in a way no absolutely and i think it's it's a really important issue uh 
one of the things that I think we do a disservice of in, in training our scientists today is that we really don't ever raise the issue that you just raised. So we're, you know, when you, when you go into a, a graduate program in the sciences, particularly, you know, um, particularly things like biology or chemistry or physics, you know, you learn how to be a biologist, and and often that requires taking a ton of really complicated courses and so on. But nowhere along the line do we teach people how to communicate the information that they're learning to the public, and and that's one of the reasons also for, for on my own trajectory that that about ten years ago I really started focusing on what are what you would refer to as kind of a, a trade book, the kind of book you would pick up in Barnes and Nobles if you were just, you know, a curious person. And um, it started because I, I had spent 20 years uh, doing experiments and mathematical models on, on the evolution of altruism and cooperation. And along the way, just because I was fascinated by it, I did reading from the very early days, sort of, you know, Darwin, Darwin time, 1850s, 1860s, began to realize there were all these incredible incredible, not just incredible scientists, but incredible people who were involved in the development of the ideas on, you know, why are we good? Why are we not good? And, um, and I all along said, you know, someday I'd like to come back and just focus on them, the way they develop their ideas, the, 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 the society and the cultural milieu in which these ideas came about. And started doing that because I felt like I could reach so many more people with this story. So in How to Tame a Fox, for example, the, the whole idea when I was writing this book was, here's this great science story. At the same time, it's got politics and it's got human interest. Yeah. And if I can do it right, what I'm going to do is reach a large chunk of people who are not even going to realize how much science they're picking up along the way as they read the book. That they're going to want to read it just because it's a good bedtime story. And then when they're done, they may realize how much cutting-edge science they learn. So I think this is critical. You know, I tell my colleagues that an article in Scientific American or um, journals like that, magazines like that, you're going to reach a hundred times the number of people you reach compared to the most cited paper you ever write. So a good paper in science today, <laughs> if you're lucky, you know, over the course of many years, a few hundred people will actually cite that paper. And, and, and that would be very – that would be a high number. Mm -hmm. But if you can write something in Scientific Americans, so, so someone in a coffee shop picks it up and reads it, you can reach tens of thousands of people. Um, and, 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 but I think, I think really the key is to do it through narrative, to tell people a story that they're going to be interested in and the science just comes through osmosis without even knowing it. I love the idea of that because I love how you're able to – use science and relate it to other topics to reach multiple people. Um, I know your other book, for example, about Thomas, Thomas Jefferson and the moose, right. the, the concept and even, you know, just the, the cover art is hilarious. This yeah. whole idea of Thomas Jefferson shipping over this giant moose. I love how like it, people who might even just have a good sense of humor would be interested yeah. in reading it. I think that's so cool. And, 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 and the nice thing about, about writing on Jefferson is almost everybody is interested in in him for one reason or another, <laughs> right? So yeah. so um, so you get this, you you have this draw, and then um, and and that was fun because everybody basically said, you know, 
gosh, you know, I never heard this. So Jefferson actually <laughs> spent all this time trying to disprove the idea that all life in the new world was weak and feeble and diminished. And he, and he, and he finds this giant moose and he ships it over to, uh, to France. <laughs> this is at the same time, right? That he's, um, you know, he starts this actually before he starts writing the Declaration of Independence and it's going on as he's doing that. He's governor of Virginia as it's going on. And he's doing all these things that every, you know, that we know about. And at the same time, somehow he's got the energy to to try and debunk this <laughs> awful theory by finding a giant moose. So it, people people just you know they they love that there's this side to Jefferson that they didn't know. That's absolutely hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think you could give our listeners just a brief rundown on your work uh, with the Soviet Fox experiment? Because I know you've you've visited the actual site. Um, in Russia. And uh, I mean, I think that's just absolutely fascinating that your work has taken you to such interesting places. Sure, I'd be happy to. And I will say, so yes, uh, the, the experiment takes place uh, in Siberia, and it takes place outside of one of the, the largest cities there um, called Novosibirsk. And so I uh, oh, so the short version of the story goes something like this. It's a 60-year-long experiment that's still going on, so it's difficult to summarize really quickly, but here's the basics. Well, the experiment is an attempt to replay the evolution of the dog from the wolf in real time, but actually using foxes rather than wolves as the uh, as the subjects, and 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 so they were interested as scientists in how domestication happens, and the basic idea that the founder of the experiment had was that the key thing to the process of domestication was to select animals that were calm and pro-social towards humans. So, if you want to domesticate something to ride it like a horse, or you want to domesticate something to eat it like cattle, or to have companionship like a dog. No matter what reason you want to domesticate, the one thing you have to have are animals that interact positively with humans. And so this fellow suggested that was the key. So he sets up this experiment, and it's really very basic. Every generation, every year, he tests hundreds of foxes. And he chooses the ones that are calmest towards humans, and they parent the next generation. And every year, foxes breed once a year. Every year they do this. So the experiment's 58 years long. That means they've done it for 58 generations. And they have foxes that are cuter and calmer than the uh, cutest lap dog you could imagine. I mean, I've held one. I've held these guys in my hands. They are... They'll lick your face. They'll uh, they'll they'll turn over on their back and want their belly rubbed. They learned. They, so there's no learning in this. This is simply the result of genetic selection for calmness. Incredible. Yeah, and what really is striking is that the only thing they ever choose on is the behavior of the animals. So they test all these hundreds of animals, but as the experiment went along, they began to see a ton of other dog-like characteristics appear. So they started getting animals that had floppy ears and curly tails and weird mutt-like coloration patterns and a more rounded dog-like face rather than a, the, the classic snout you think of a fox. You see these kinds of traits in many, many domesticated species, and nobody's really understood why over and over again we tend to see these things in so many animals that we domesticate. This experiment suggests that just choosing on behavior has the correlated effect of, 
of producing all of these other traits. Now that's the science. I, I, I won't get into, basically on the political front, all of this was illegal and people were being thrown into prison for doing genetics in Russia at this time. So they had to go under the radar and there are a ton of interesting stories there. The people who did this experiment and who still do it in Siberia are remarkable. Uh, as you said, I, I was there a couple of times. It's, it's It takes place, the, 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 the home of the researchers is this extraordinary place about 45 minutes away from the big city in Siberia. And this place is called Akademogordok, which means the academic village. It's a so, mouthful. That's right, it is. And, <laughs> uh, and, and so what happened was a few years before the experiment started, Khrushchev and leading scientists cleared out this giant chunk of Siberian forest. And what they did was they built two dozen world-class science institutes, including one where this work happened. So what you have to this day is a kind of intellectual, academic nirvana place where everybody, there are 50,000 people that live in this village, and every one of them is somehow or another associated with one of these research institutes. Either they're the scientists or they're the family of the scientists or the workers who take care of all the things that need to be taken care of in, when you're doing science. And so that's where they are. And then if you go yet another 20 minutes away, you come to where the foxes are, which is this experimental farm that houses about 700 of these foxes. And it's just... Out in, I mean, when I say it's out in the middle of nowhere, I mean, this, this is the definition of out in the middle of nowhere. You're in Siberia. It's minus 40. There's, you know, five feet of snow on the ground. And surrounded by nothing but that is this place where this incredible experiment continues to go on to this day. And the foxes love it. They're, they're perfectly fine in minus 40 degree weather. But uh, humans need to make all sorts of accommodations to, to, to be out there and do the work. So um, it's 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 extraordinary experiment on every level, from the science to the politics to the to the people. So the co-author on my this book, her name is Ludmila Trutz, and Ludmila has been leading the experiment from day one. So she started the experiment in 1958 when she was 25. She's 83 and she's still leading the experiment. Um, and so you could imagine how many stories she has to tell. And so one of the fun things about doing this project was it wasn't just telling the science um, that you can find in journals. It's telling all of those behind the scene things that happened along the way, including the things that didn't work that you usually don't hear about when you read journal articles. Well, right. I mean, I think I'm sure you've gotten this question before, but I think a lot of people may read the title of this book and be like, why do I care how to train a fox or uh, how to make a dog? Right. I mean, how would you how would you answer that? I mean, it seems that there are a lot of human stories intertwined, you know, with this kind of greater research project. So, I mean, how, how would you answer that? And I mean, that applies to a lot of different questions of, you know, why should we care right. about science? Right. Sure. Well, I, I would I would answer it at a couple of different levels. First of all, there are few things in human history that have changed everything about us more than the animals that we have domesticated. I mean, when we began domesticating animals, that was a pivotal moment in human history where we began to live. So we were living in more um, 
permanent smaller settlements, and these domesticated animals provided us food, protection, and transportation, and changed the entire dynamic of human history. So trying to understand the process of how these animals became domesticated is fundamentally important to understanding our own evolutionary history. I'll further add that there's there are, are scientific theories that make the argument that we humans have actually domesticated ourselves, that we are the product of self-domestication. If you look at lots of traits that domesticated animals have. We share a lot of those traits, obviously not the floppy ears and the curly tails, <laughs> but a lot of juvenilization compared to our ancestral species. We stay in a juvenile state a lot longer. We have tremendous similarity on that front with, dom with domesticated species. And there's an argument that we domesticated ourselves. So in addition to understanding how these animals that play such a key role, and plants, right? I mean, domestication of, of, of crops, is another thing that was a pivotal point in our own evolutionary history. All of a sudden, we were growing our own food, and we were using domestication techniques to do that. Um, so I think those—that's a couple of reasons why 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 you might want to be why you might be interested in this. The other thing is that it'll give you a picture of how science is done. Right? So I mean, even if you're not a scientist, even if you don't care about the details of science, almost everything that impacts your life today is the result of scientific and engineering sorts of accomplishments that have occurred. And sometimes we tend to sanitize the whole process of science and make it seem like, oh, well, you know, somebody just came up with a great idea. They went out, they started testing it, and bang, they found all these amazing results. What you see with stories like this are the twists and turns, the ups and downs, the way that everything that affects your everyday life affects the everyday life of scientists, from the politics that made it illegal to do this experiment to the day-to-day -day interactions they had with these lovable little creatures. This is all sort of what our lives are about, and, and we see in this story how that changed the course of the experiment, what they did, when they did it, how they did it. It's all in there. Uh, Dr. Zagatkin, um, I'd love to ask you, you know, with us being college students, we're still trying to figure out what we want to do, you know, where we want to go from here. Uh, you're a man of history, you're a man of science. You clearly understood the vast uh, cultural uh, and even climate differences, you know, going up to Siberia. I was wondering if you could, you know, talk a little bit about just uh, what it was like making that decision to go out there and do that, and, and, and was there anything that you uh, were pleasantly surprised by? Sure, sure, yeah. Well, um, in this case, uh, I, I reached out to Ludmila uh, a long time ago, about 10 years ago, sort of said, I would love to tell this story to as many people as we could, and um, she was interested. And what happened was we first started communicating through email, and she's writes English and can read English pretty well. So we go back and forth and what's happening is I'm asking her questions and she's only telling me the detailed answers to the scientific questions. She She's very reluctant to tell me the behind the scenes story, the politics, the love stories, all the things that I know I need in order to reach people. And I begin to realize 
of course, this is a person who grew up under Stalin, under Soviet rule. You don't go around talking about those things to people that you don't know very well. You can talk about science. Sure, she talks about science all the time in her journal articles. So I thought to myself, I need to go there. I need to meet her. I need her to, to, to interact with me, to see what I'm about, to see what it is I really want to do with this project. And I'll tell you just, again, one of these serendipitous things. When I went the first time, it was 2012. My son um, had just finished high school and he was taking a, a year where he was interning before he went to college. And I said to him, you want to come with me? And, um, and he at first was like, hmm. Uh, and he thought about it and he said, yeah, that sounds really cool. So the reason I mentioned this is that while I was there, Ludmila got to know me, but she also got to know my son. And he was 17 at the time. And she re they really hit it off. And, they, and she's like another grandmother to him. And when I came back from that trip, so I, I spent days and days and days talking to Ludmila about everything from the science to the love stories to the politics. I talked to dozens of other people. When I came back, I think Ludmila understood all my, my only goal here is to get this incredible story to as many people as possible. After that, I couldn't get her to stop telling me uh, <laughs> things. I yeah. mean, so, so you just, you know, there, there's that personal side to it that makes it special. Um, I, I will say one of the things that was very humbling about going there was, uh, so we had to work through an interpreter um, because, like I said, Ludmilla can write English, but when it comes to speaking it, we need to, and we were talking a lot, you know, eight hours a day. So we needed an interpreter. And I began to learn things about the science, about science in the Soviet Union. And what I discovered was that, so when I say the Soviet Union, that's when the, the, the experiment started, right? And, and for the vast majority of the experiment, it was the Soviet Union. I realized that they basically, scientists there, knew what was going on in the West. They, even though it was very difficult, they managed to get their hands on our journals and were keeping up with what was going on in the West, whereas we had absolutely no idea with what was going on mm -hmm. there. What's more, they, as a, as a rule, are really broadly educated. So they know everything about Western literature and Western culture, where, again, most people know very little about Russian history. You may, you know, you could probably name, you know, Dostoevsky and 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 a few names, but most people know very little. I was humbled by how much more they knew about us than we knew about them. And um and that translated into me trying to remedy that for myself. You know, I, I don't I'm not gonna be able to fix it for everybody, but um seeing how much there was this chasm between what we know in the West about what happened in the East really changed me. And, 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 and I, um, a number of projects I've done since then have been centered on Soviet biology. Well, you know, uh, it's really interesting, really been interesting talking to you. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, we're running low on time, so we'd love to just ask you one more question. Sure. Uh, what What is your personal definition of success, and what advice do you have to college students who are trying to define success for themselves? 
It's not an easy that, question. That, that, I'm about to say. Yeah. Um, that's a good. That, that, it's a good question. How would I define success? Um, I. I think it for me is waking up and feel like feeling like I'm contributing to enlightening society. Um, and that might be through the science I'm doing. It might be through the history I'm doing. It might just be through talk to, through talking to people about the sort of things that, that we've been talking about here. If I can reach people, if I, if I can explain to them, um, the power of rational thinking. It doesn't matter to me if it's through an experiment I do or a mathematical model I do or a narrative tale that I do. To me, that's what gets me up in the morning and that's how I define success. Um, you know, it's not a particularly monetary definition, but, um, but I, uh, and, 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 and I will say that, you know, to take the path to allow you to do this, um, it, it takes time. It takes a long time, you know, to feel to be able to feel as though you know enough that you can actually stand up and talk to people uh, about these things in a way that'll help them. So it, it's a long path, but to me, it was really the only path that was was the one that I could take. That's really cool. Oh, unfortunately, yeah. that is all the time we have today. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, Professor, and uh, to Bye. all our listeners out there. Remember to stay hungry. Absolutely. Thank you, Thank you guys very much. I Thank you. It. All right.